Welcome to another episode of Love and War, the podcast in which the irresistible force overcomes the immovable object. I'm your host, Lee Ballinger. I'm an author, poet, and producer based in Los Angeles. If you want to know more, check out my bio on Facebook, L-E-E-B-A-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. You can hit me up at rockrap at AOL.com, R-O-C-K-R-A-P, or on Facebook. In March of 1982, I found myself in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the first and only convention ever held by the National Football League Players Association. On the second day, I was a panelist at some workshop or another. There were a few dozen players in the room. One of them, a star-wide receiver, was acting up like a first grader to the point that it disrupted the session. About halfway through, a featured running back stood up, declared, we don't need to hear any of this bullshit, and led most of the players present out of the room. End of session. Compare that to the NFL players of today who, through public statements and various actions during the playing of the national anthem, are trying to force a national discussion of issues such as police brutality and veterans' homelessness. Yet NFL owners and the media continue to insist that the only issue is that kneeling or sitting during the playing of the national anthem is an insult to veterans and to active-duty military personnel. Any player who disrespects the flag will not be allowed to play, said Dallas Cowboy owner Jerry Jones. In an attempt to further deflect attention from the real issues, Jones, who somehow managed to avoid military service himself, made a show of so-called unity by linking arms with Cowboy players before a game. If Jerry's so keen on unity, why didn't he apologize for helping to bankroll Donald Trump? Why didn't he experience remorse when the president called NFL players sons of bitches? Eight other NFL owners gave major bucks to Trump's election campaign. Yet they haven't apologized either in the wake of Trump's attacks on their meal ticket. When Jamel Hill of ESPN tweeted that fans unhappy with Jerry Jones' statement should boycott NFL advertisers, Donald Trump said she should be fired. ESPN complied in spirit by suspending her for two weeks. NFL owners were again silent. Despite their alleged love for the military, NFL owners didn't say a word when Trump announced he would send another 4,000 troops to Afghanistan, from where they may well return in body bags or missing an arm or a leg. It's worth noting the Bank of America is the official bank of the NFL. Bank of America has foreclosed on tens of thousands of veterans and active-duty military personnel. The owners don't care. They pocketed $10 million this past summer when Bank of America bought their blessing. I have a new book out called Love and War, My First 30 Years of Writing. You can download a copy absolutely free at loveandwarbook.com. That's loveandwarbook.com. Let me know what you think of it.
Francis Scott Key wrote the words to the Star Spangled Banner. The tune is from a bawdy British drinking song during the War of 1812, the time when over one million Africans were being held as slaves in the United States. Yet, Key described America as the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is yet to be mentioned in the ongoing controversy of athletes taking a stand, often by sitting down, during the playing of the national anthem. The uncritical, constant promotion of the Star-Spangled Banner has reinforced a false picture of America by ignoring the inequality that defines our country and the power relationships which keep it that way. The song burns acceptance of war as an instrument of national policy into our brains. This began with the first high-profile performances of the National Anthem at the 1918 World Series. Before the first game began, a star-spangled banner was played while the players went through military drills on the field, marching with bats on their shoulders to simulate rifles. Even musical changes in the National Anthem are taboo. In 1968, Jose Feliciano did the first remix of the Star-Spangled Banner when he performed a beautiful, languid version before Game 5 of the World Series in Detroit. That a Puerto Rican would presume to take liberties with the anthem provoked a firestorm of protest. A year later, Jimi Hendrix did his famous version of the national anthem at Woodstock, which, he later said, was meant to convey that we're all Americans. We play it the way the air is in America. On the eve of the 2006 immigration marches across the United States, a new version of the national anthem got massive airplay on Spanish-language stations across the country. Retitled Nuestro Himno, it used Latin pop instrumentation with Spanish vocals. References to bombs and rockets were removed, and the second stanza was rewritten to include lines such as, We are equal, we are brothers. A hip-hop remix was issued a month later, featuring the following rap. Let's not start a war with all these hard workers. They can't help where they were born. Nuestro Himno echoed Hendrix in insisting that we're all Americans. It was widely attacked, dismissed as the illegal alien anthem by those who evidently just hadn't noticed the way the air was in America in 2006. It's even more so today. Please rise and join in the singing of our national anthem, which will be played by Merle Albee's band and will be sung by Jose Feliciano. Roanoke is in southwest Virginia, where Donald Trump won most counties by 65% or more. Yet in the wake of Trump's open gloating about abandoning Puerto Rico, on October 14th, the Roanoke Times ran an editorial entitled, How Appalachia and Puerto Rico Can Help Each Other. 
The piece expresses sympathy for the devastation of Hurricane Maria and concludes, Puerto Rico's economic situation is really no different than that of Appalachia's. Puerto Rico is poor and has a bigger out-migration, but those are differences only of degree. The Appalachian coal fields of Virginia, Kentucky, and West Virginia are basically a mainland version of Puerto Rico. They may not see themselves that way, but in economic terms and population decline, they are exactly the same. They just don't have a hurricane that has ravaged them, only the decline of the coal industry. It's unclear whether any proposed Marshall Plan for Puerto Rico will be forthcoming, but the point here is not to resent the idea. Rather, it's to make the case that Appalachia should be making common cause with Puerto Rico. Meanwhile, a group of veterans from Appalachia has formed Veterans Disaster Relief, a team which has responded to the crisis in Puerto Rico by flying there at their own expense and working hard to get food, medicine, water, and other necessities to Puerto Rican families trapped in areas of the countryside which no longer have passable roads. Away from the coast, Beckley, West Virginia native Jason Maddy explains the island is a lot like West Virginia, with mountains, windy roads, and extreme poverty. Describing the Puerto Ricans they work with as mountain folk, Maddie says, we feel part of their family now, so it feels like we're taking care of family members. The veterans from Appalachia encounter many other veterans on the island, Puerto Ricans who served in the U.S. Armed Forces. These are our fellow Americans, Maddie says. They deserve the same food and water and emergency help as anyone else. Let's finish up with a quote of the week, this time from George Monbiot and his book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. The old world, which once looked stable, even immutable, is collapsing. A new era has begun. Loaded with hazard if we fail to respond, charged with promise if we seize the moment. Whether the systems that emerge from this rupture are better or worse than the current dispensations depends on our ability to tell a new story, a story that learns from the past, places us in the present, and guides the future. That's it for now. If you see me on the street, smile back. Well, together we stand. Cause together we will stand Every boy, every woman and